Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation. It was interesting after the service today. It was a beautiful day. It is still a beautiful day out. And I watched some people came, went right home. I saw others come, and uh, they stood out in the parking lot and fellowship six feet apart forever. They were just glad to see each other again. So I, I hope that you've enjoyed getting to fellowship. You know, whether you make it to the church service or not, a church is a lot about fellowship. Um, I like the definition of fellowship that says it's two, ship, two fellows stuck in the same ship. So uh, you've got to learn to get together and talk. I hope you reach out to each other and make sure that nobody's left out and um, let them know that you care about them intensely and, uh, and all the other things that go along with fellowship. Sometimes fellowship is just uh, doing things you know, sweetly for each other and, and noticing each other. Uh, I, I, I've been waiting for Jim and Dave to play tricks on each other. They haven't done as much in these last four or five weeks. Uh, maybe you could throw something down at Jim tonight or something, Dave, up there. Yeah. Uh, if you couldn't hear him, Dave said, I can't see his face. I didn't know he was even here, basically. I, so, uh, well, have fun with each other. Lighten up a little bit. Uh, life goes on, and our fellowship goes on. You know, one day in eternity, we're going to have brand new bodies. It'll be virus-free. And that'll be, that'll be pretty nice to, to have in that way. All right. Let's start with a word of prayer, and we're going to dive right into the book of Revelation tonight. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us as we get into the book of Revelation, that our hearts would be encouraged. The revelation of Jesus, your Son, and Lord, that he is the key to all for us as Christians I pray tonight that you'd help me to have a focus, Lord. Uh, this is a, a great chapter, and I pray, Father, that we'd be able to give it the attention that it deserves. Help our minds to be focused. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, chapter 17 and 18 in the book of Revelation had to do with the judgment of Babylon, the great whore. Chapter 17 had to do with the religious system, and we went back and we talked about how the, all the way back from the Garden of Eden, right up then in the, uh, after um, Noah's Ark, we had the, the son of uh, Noah, that uh, grandson named Nimrod, and uh, built, helped to build Babel, and Babylonianism has been alive and well for the last hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And as such, Babylonianism isn't so much a city as it is a system that's contrary to God. It's an antichrist type of a underlying spirit. That's what was judged in chapter 17. Chapter 18 was the very political system of Babylonianism, and we, uh, they have fallen. So we, we've given two full weeks. If so, well, I don't know what you're talking about, Pastor. Get, get on the website or whatever. Go back and listen to those two messages. I'm not going to preach that tonight. But now we come to chapter 19. In chapter 19, the first several verses, are you take one word and it describes what's in there. It's the word alleluia. And uh, they're saying, alleluia, hallelujah, hallelujah. Four times it's mentioned in these first several verses because Babylon and Babylonianism, and the Antichrist, and the program that's anti-God and anti-Jesus has been put down, and the rebellion against heaven is gone. 
So with that in mind, we're going to read these first few verses, and then we're going to uh, go on. Look at verse 1. And after these things, chapter 19, after these things, I heard a great voice of much people, where? In heaven, saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged the great whore, that is chapter 17 and 18, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants. And again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever and the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshiped God that sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. Boy, there you got you sort of a double, don't you? Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunders, thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Wow, you see, this is a victory. This is a four times around the track lap singing hallelujah in heaven that the Lord has prevailed, and there's much for us to consider here. So let's just go back, please, and look, if you will, please, at verse 1. Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. This is what is being said in the very presence of God. It's, it's acknowledging who is seated on that throne. Can you go back with me, please, to the book of, uh, in chapter 4 of uh, Revelation, please? Go back with me, please, to Revelation chapter 4. And we would look at verse 9, 10, and 11. If you remember chapter 1, 2, and 3, Chapter 1 of Revelation was the revelation we saw Jesus himself. Then we saw the introduction of the churches and the angels to the churches. And then we had chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches. The seven churches are not mentioned. We believe the rapture take place. Now we're in the fourth chapter. And as we come to the fourth chapter, it's the throne room of heaven. If you remember, maybe about nine months, a year ago, we, I really enjoyed preaching chapter 4 and chapter 5 as we saw God sitting up on the emerald throne. Remember that? Oh, it was a tremendous place. And here in the throne room of God, let's see what's being, remind ourselves what's being said. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, where is all life? Is from God. God gives life. We, life returns to him. We respond to God. Verse, 20, verse 10, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne. So the four and twenty elders, we'll identify those again in just a moment. They fall down here. This is the first time that we're seeing them. They fall down before the throne. And him that sat upon the throne is God the Father. They worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive. And here is the same basic chant as we find over in chapter 19. Glory and honor and power 
for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. It gives all authority, all everything's from and everything's to the glory of God the Father. Boy, we talked about why evolution is so, you go back, God created all things. I couldn't hear what you said. My watch. <sighs> Sorry. I apologize to that. Here we have these honors and these glories and all the rest being given to God the Father. And it's for thy pleasure all things are and were created. And we talked about evolution. Evolution takes away the glory of God. For God made us in his image. And we will have a judgment. And he is in charge. And when you take I believe the science of evolution and put it across mankind, you take away all the plan of God and the word of God. And so you can't have it both ways. Listen, if you're listening to me tonight in the congregation or out there, you cannot be a theistic evolutionist. You can't be an evolutionist. You either God did it like he said or he didn't do it at all. It's one way or the other. And here, these these. Uh, Alleluia's are to this one that sits on the throne. So that's our first Alleluia. Let's look at verse 2, back in Revelation 19. For true and righteous are his judgment. For he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his saints. And so here we, we notice a couple things. First of all, they are validating the righteous judgment that God has just given in chapter 17 and 18. A lot of the commentaries that, that I read make much of the fact that this should be of great comfort to us as Christians, that God's judgment, even though it's strong, even though it's severe, even though it's all-encompassing, it's eternal, all the things you would like to say, it is always right and righteous and fair. God does not grind an axe. God is gracious. God is merciful. And God is all these other things. And here they call out, in God's judgment. I want you to remember back in our study, how many times, even up in the end of the book of Revelation, as he poured out the, the seals and the judgments and the bowls, was God calling the people to repent, repent repent, repent, right up to the very end, and they would not. How righteous you are, God. How fair you are, God. How loving, how way past what people would expect. And so this hallelujah cries out before God. God, you're a righteous God. You're a good God. You're to be honored. You're to be glorified. There is no fault in the way you have judged Babylon. It's been equitable, and it's been fair. You say, well, pastor, of course it is. This is very important because many times you and I might even been guilty and say, God, why did you do that? Do we not sometimes subtly question the hand of God? And here, the, the very creatures and the very people of heaven are validating the righteousness and the fairness of God. Go on, please, in verse 3. I'm verse 2, I'm sorry. He says, uh, for he hath judged the great whore. I'd like to just remind us, what is the great whore? It is that Babylonian system that's been fighting. What, what happened? 
What, what is this Babylonianism? What, what is this, this Antichrist system? The day that Adam and Eve forfeited the, the righteous deed to this earth and Satan came along and picked it up. One of the things that we need to understand to understand the importance of this chapter is that we're being redeemed in this chapter. The whole book of Revelation speaks of God redeeming man unto himself. Do you remember as we come into chapter 5 of the book of Revelation, what was the cry in heaven? They picked up that seven seal book, who is worthy? And nobody was found worthy until finally who? The lamb, as it were, slain from the foundation of the earth, steps forward. And if you get a big backup picture in the book of Revelation, you are seeing this whole court redemption process unfolding. Five, six, seven, all these chapters. And now at the end of chapter 18, this one that has uh, this Babylonian system called uh, the great whore and, and Babylonianism has now been judged, found guilty, and now it has been cast aside and destroyed. And now Jesus, the second Adam, has come to redeem mankind. And so we find, praise the Lord, Alleluia! He has come to set things right to redeem mankind. And notice there's a second thing in verse 2, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. What servants? These are the saints that have died under Old Testament and New Testament Babylonianism. Go back to Revelation chapter 6, please. Revelation chapter 6. At the beginning of this process, think of this as appearing in court. There's somebody that stands up in court and says, we'd like to have our, our um, grievances addressed. Look, if you will, please, in verse 11. Make sure I got the right reference there. Yeah, Revelation 4.11. I'm sorry. 4.6.10. Uh, I'm, I'm off by verse. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? These are the saints that live underneath the altar. Do you remember how they cried out? And they said, Lord, when do we get our day? And God, in his righteous moving of righteous mercy and righteous judgment, answers them in verse 11. And he, he, he said, uh, verse 11, And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that they should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. They said, you just be patient. The clock hasn't quite moved, but God hasn't forgotten. Okay? So now we go over here to Revelation chapter 19, and he's mentioning these people in verse 2. He has not only judged Babylonian and that whole system for all that it's done, but all the saints that have died in that process their blood has been, been avenged before the Lord. Look, if you will, at verse 3. And again, they said, Alleluia! And her smoke 
rose up forever and ever. What is this talking about? This is the end of Babylonianism. This is not a temporary pushback in their Babylonianism is dead. The smoke of this judgment will rise up forever and ever and ever as a testimony of the power of God over sin. Look, if you will, at verse 4. And the four and twenty elders. Who were those four and twenty elders? These represent the leadership of the church. This is the church and as it's represented. And so now you've had, you've had the Old Testament saints and all the grievances, they, they are addressed. And now the church steps up to say, Alleluia. And it says in verse, uh, the four and twenty elders and the four beasts. Who are the four beasts? These are four special created beasts that cry to the holiness of God, uh, fell down and they worship God that sat upon the throne saying, Amen and Alleluia. Let it be doubly established that our God is a fair God and that he has redeemed mankind and that he has brought the church unto himself. Verse 5, And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And so here at this point, he, the, the people of the earth are called by a voice out of the throne. It's sort of like a, uh, a worship leader. All the earth, we want to hear you cry out, both small and great. And then we have a great swelling of all the heavens and all the earth. And it says, and I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, as the voice of many waters, as the voice of mighty thunderings saying, Alleluia. And look at this last phrase. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. We know the three omnis, do we not? There's omniscience, God is all-knowing, uh, omniscience, God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-presence. Well, we're going to have trouble with you all tonight. Okay, sorry my watch doesn't like something in the message. Okay. So this last hallelujah is a call from heaven for the whole world to cry. And the whole world cries out, God, you're all-powerful. There's no one that can stand against the power of God. And Christians, that should be of great comfort for you and me. Satan cannot overwhelm, Satan, uh, overwhelm God. What has been going on with the spirit of Babylonianism? Satan has tried to put himself on the throne as if he were God. I've been preach, teaching in the book of Daniel with my high school class. I'm not going to take the time, but one of the things that Antichrist in the person of Antiochus Epiphanes, he represents the spirit. He, in the midst of the seven-year tribulation, sits upon this throne. He casts even the Jews aside and he tries to bring the God of forces to himself and assert himself over everything in the world. This has been set aside once and for all. Satan has been totally destroyed. God is omnipotent. God has prevailed. You know what this makes us stop and think about? It reminds us in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where we have um, the beginning of the gospel. Remember, Thy seed and her seed, 
the seed representing Jesus, the virgin-born son, the, the seed of the woman against uh, 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 the, Satan, and that Satan would get a head wound, but Jesus would get a heel wound. And Satan, you're going to be totally diminished and you're going to be totally destroyed once and for all. And here we find that promise from the book of Genesis coming to full fruition right here at this particular. Hallelujah, God. You are omnipotent. And all the throne room of heaven calls out for him. And all of the creatures of the universe yell back, Hallelujah. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. And they give God glory. Can you imagine? It, it says here, the voice of many waters, the voice of many thund mighty thunderings. Can you imagine the power of every living voice in the universe giving glory to God as he deserves? That's the picture that we have here. Well, mankind has been redeemed. This is God, Christ has stepped forward. Let's remember, though, what redemption is. Um, let me just grab my notes to make sure I don't forget anything. Christ is our kinsman redeemer. We set this back up in chapter 5. Remember when the Lamb steps forth as our kinsman redeemer? What's happened? Adam, because of his sin, has forfeited the right of leadership over the world and over, over his seed. Satan has tried to set up this false church pictured as Babylonianism. That has been totally now set aside and his claims to this world have been totally paid off. Why could he do that? Because Jesus as our kinsman redeemer stepped forward. What's a kinsman redeemer? There's four things that a kinsman redeemer has to be able to do to assert his right of redemption. Number one, he has to be a kinsman. Okay? And how is Jesus our kinsman? Because he is the second Adam. Because he was the incarnated son of God. He is the God-man. He is our flesh. Jesus took on human flesh to be our redeemer. He didn't just up there in heaven. He came down to where we are so that he could do what we needed to do. He came in our place as our kinsman. So he satisfied number one. Number two, he had to be able to redeem. He had to have the ability to redeem. And we find that Jesus Christ by his blood. And that's why in Revelation chapter 5, you see the lamb as it were slain from the foundation of the world. And how did Christ then prevail? By grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. And the, so our kinsman was will, came and he had the ability to give a redemption to the church. And he came to the court and he said, I will give my life, my blood to redeem the church to himself. And then number three, he had to be willing. And this is why, especially when you come to the Garden of Gethsemane, the human flesh side of Jesus arguing with God's side, and he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. And Jesus said, not my will, but thy will be done. And Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, I give it willingly. 
And so Jesus laid down his life for us as our kinsman redeemer. His life was not snatched away. He wasn't drugged away. He stepped forward as a willing kinsman redeemer. This is important in the court. You've got to meet all the conditions of it. And then the fourth condition, you have to pay the complete price. And so when that complete price has been accepted and documented and officially entered, at that moment, that person is able to be, has redeemed the, uh, that, that person or that bride unto it. Picturing kinsman redemption is the book of Ruth. A lot of us know the book of Ruth, and we find that Naomi, with her husband, went down into Moab. Two sons died, got two daughters-in-law. They're all broke. They finally decide to come back, and one, Orpah, decides to not go, but Ruth decides to come. When Ruth gets back up there with Naomi, they go back to the house and try to fix it up. And, you know, they, their land has been forfeited. Their, their husbands, you know, have all lost everything. And, and somebody needs to marry in and take Ruth and pick up and redeem her and be her kinsman. And you can study through it. But in Ruth chapter 3, verse 9, there comes a point where Ruth approaches Boaz. And as she approaches Boaz, she said, lay your skirt across me and redeem. And what that was at that point, she had presented, it sounds a little strange to us, but she presented herself to her, to him, and he was willing and ready and he accepted her and he laid literally his skirt across. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the righteousness of Christ being laid across us as he has redeemed us unto himself? Christ now has redeemed the church and hallelujah. That sets up the next part of the chapter. A marriage. It's the marriage of the lamb and his bride. And who's the bride? Could you say, we are? It's the church. Christ has come to claim his church. And he has the right to do it. And all that you've seen in these chapters before in the book of Revelation have been all the battling and all the, 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 the court deeds and all the, the verifications. And the beginning of this chapter, you might say, is like the, the opening of the wedding scene where the people say, Hallelujah! Let's get to the marriage! It is an exciting time for us as Christians. This is a glorious time. Christ has come for the church, and he's going to marry it. Look, if you will, verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come. Mark your Bible, put that is come, circle it, arrows. It's arrived. Hey, you and I are still looking forward to that. God sees us it already accomplished because this is God's will that the church be redeemed, that we will be married to Christ. And he has the right to do it and he is willing to do it. And this is that fourth step when he comes to complete it. Our kinsman redeemer has come for his own. So it says, for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife hath made herself ready. 
Well, that's a beautiful picture. How has she made herself ready? Well, she's been raptured. She's been taken up before the judgment seat of Christ. And there we find in the next verse that the righteousness of Christ has been laid across her. And all of her robes, her own self-righteousness has been laid aside. And she now takes upon her as a gift from God the righteousness of Christ to be laid across her. Amen. Aren't you glad that when God sees you and me, he doesn't see me, he sees Jesus, that he sees all the righteousness, he sees my sin removed, he sees me pure and white and all the other things that are there in that chapter. And so he says, and he says, and his wife made herself ready. You know, in a smaller way, we as Christians should be looking in our life that we'd be ready when Jesus comes. Can I get you to turn over to Matthew chapter 25? Matthew chapter 25. Here we find Jesus speaking, and he's going to talk about the coming of the bridegroom and being ready. In verse 1, then shall the kingdom of heaven, or Matthew 25, 1, be likened unto the ten virgins which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there not be enough for us and you. But go ye rather to, to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they were ready, that were ready, went in with him to the marriage. And the door was shut. And you know, we need to stop and really think about that. You could interpret this a lot of ways, but I tell you what, when Jesus comes, are you going to be ready? And I know one major interpretation of this is, are you saved? When Jesus comes, will he find you watching? Will he find you ready? And afterwards also came the other virgin saying, Lord, Lord, open to me. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Wow. That's pretty heartening. Here we are in the middle of this great big marriage we're talking about. We're, five minutes ago we're rejoicing. But here's five that aren't rejoicing. And I wonder how many, we've got several places we can look in Scripture. When Jesus comes, they're going to say, you know, Lord, take me, I'm ready to go. And Jesus says, I, I never knew you. I'm afraid there are a lot of people, a lot of religions, that they're trusting in their own self-righteousness. They confess to the priest. They've built buildings for a church. They've 
helped old people and they've been in coronavirus. They volunteer down and risk their life and say, Jesus, didn't you see all these good things? And Jesus says, it's not our righteousness. In Isaiah chapter 64, it says that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy wrecks. And so as we look back and we see over in the book of Revelation, we see that they, they made themselves ready. We need to be ready to be a bride. And then here, these that are making themselves ready, I think it speaks the rapture's taking place. You've had the judgment seat of Christ, the righteousness of Christ as like a wedding gown been placed on the bride. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And now we're brought forth at the end of the book of, uh, of the revelation, uh, of the tribulation, and we're brought forth before Jesus as people are saying, hallelujah. And then you have in contrast to this. I want you to get this. Chapter 17 is that false bride that Satan's tried to put in her place. She's called the great whore. That's who Satan wanted to sit on the throne as his bride. Let's go back and look at her again, please. As opposed to, it says in verse 8 here, that she was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen and clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Isn't that a beautiful picture? We could preach and preach on that. Go back to Revelation chapter 17 now, and let's see Satan's anti-bride. That's a, that's a new word, anti-bride, Okay. Chapter 17, verse 1. There came out the seven while the seven angels had the seven vials, talk with me, saying unto me, Come up hither, I will show thee the judgment of the great whore which sitteth upon the many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit of the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, with righteousness and the whiteness of God. Is that what you see? No. Full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls and having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was written, a name, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Set that in juxtaposition to the bride of Christ. And this imposture, this satanic substitute has been cast down. And now enter the real bride. Isn't that a beautiful picture? It's a beautiful... And this, this is all what Christ has done for us in redeeming us. And now is the bride coming. And now you and I, the marriage of the Lamb. And you notice, it's not focused so much on the Lamb, on the, on the, on the bride. It's focused on the Lamb. For it's He that has gone forth and He has proclaimed himself a bride, and she has come. Let me just grab my notes here. What are some of the things that are important to make a contract uh, go forth in, in, in this time? 
A marriage contract in the Old Testament had three parts to it. First, there was the actual marriage contract. I can't imagine this, but somebody going and finding a young man and a family and find another family and this man and this woman are contracted to each other at seven years old. Can you imagine that? But it's a legal deed. And so from the foundations of the earth, the lamb has been contracted to bring forth the bride. That's amazing. This is, this is from God's eternity past that the church would be his bride. Okay. Second thing, is there would be a time when that contract came of age. And that would be in the fullness of time. And who knows when that fullness of time is? Only God the Heavenly Father. And so now in the book of Revelation, this fullness of time have come, and now Jesus has come forth as a kinsman redeemer. He's paid the price, he's stepped forward, and now the bride is brought to them. And so the contract from the past has now met the present. And they are brought forward. And then the third thing, after that legal, this was a contract written, this is a legal standing in front of the court, now they come to the marriage feast. And that's what we're invited to here. We're invited to the feast that celebrates this, this great happening. So let's go on, please, if you will, verse Jack, Revelation chapter 19, verse 8. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed to, in fine linen, clean and white, for the white linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he saith unto me, Write, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These things are true sayings of God. Well, write these things. Blessed are they that are invited to the marriage supper. I want to just cover a couple things that are not in this passage. There are some people that misunderstand who is part of the bride. The bride is anybody that has accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. I want to just sort of kick in the head, and maybe let's make somebody mad tonight, but uh, I am not a Baptist brider. See, what do you mean? If you're not a Baptist, you're just a guest. It's in the margin here somewhere, okay? If you're, maybe for a different church, if you're not a Methodist, if you're not a Presbyterian, this is the bride redeemed by the blood of Christ, okay? And he makes it very clear here that, they, that we in Jesus Christ, this would not be the Old Testament saints, these would not be the saints of the, in the, that have been saved after the rapture and they've gone into the tribulation and they, these would be a different group. This is the church that was raptured. Those that were brought up from the dead in medicine and we met in the air and we went before the Lord. This is the church. As we come before the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not restricted to a little filter that you and I want to put on it. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, then you're part of this bride. Well, who, who are the guests then? Well, first of all, we know it would be the Old Testament saints. And I, I was reading one commentary. They said, who, who, might, who might be the uh, best man? John the Baptist. 
He's an Old Testament saint. Even though he's in the New Testament, he's an Old Testament saint. That was just somebody's humor coming out, you know. I don't know. Maybe it would be Elijah. Maybe Moses. I don't know who was the best man. But they're guests. Blessed are the guests. And it talks about those in the future, those after the rapture. Blessed are the guests. They get to see this wonderful thing that has been contracted from eternity past come to pass. The bride has been redeemed, and now she is presented before Christ, and it's being fulfilled. Celebrate! Hallelujah! And that's the spirit of this passage of Scripture. If you know Jesus Christ, you aren't going to be a guest. You're going to be a participant. Amen? Blessed are they that are called unto the marriage feast of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These things, these are the true sayings of God. I think I appreciate that statement more because I've been preaching double things in my Bible class. And when you, three or four times in the book of Daniel, the Lord said, the angel said to him, These things are the truths of God. These sayings say the true God. What, what does that mean? These things are established by the omnipotent, omniscient God, and these things will come to pass. Let's remember, these things are still future for you and me. And here God says, these things are true sayings. Jesus tells us in John chapter 3, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee. That would be equivalent to this passage of Scripture. Verily, verily. These are true sayings. What are these true sayings? The marriage feast will take place. All the redeemed will be brought unto God through Jesus Christ. The Lamb will have his bride. Satan will be put in his place. Satan will not prevail. God is omnipotent. Hallelujah. Amen. That's the spirit of this passage. Look at verse 10. And I fell at his feet to worship him. Now, who's the him here? It's an angel. And the angel says unto me, See thou do it not. Can I put a little asterisk in our study in the book of Revelation? Okay, I'm going to step over here. Okay, Asterix, angel worship is wrong. You go to a lot of these little stores where they have little pins and things like that. And, and you know, it's really nice. Ladies, let me pick on you. I don't think the men do it as much as the ladies. They like to just have a little angel. I'm good protected by a little angel. And, and they like an angel swinging on their mirror, you know, in the car. And the angel here and... Be careful, you're not worshiping angels. Angels are powerful. God uses angels. I just a few weeks ago mentioned in the book of Daniel, we find that God talks about the powerful angels and the unseen fights that's going up above us. And I believe that God does have a, a set of angels or a guardian angel that watches over Westside Baptist Church. And, and we can't imagine what, but we in this church, this verse are straightened out about how we're supposed to be related to them. It's not worship. 
We do not worship angels. If you have had that, if you wanted to, sort of like when I was a boy, I can remember having a brother-in-law that always had a lucky rabbit's foot hanging. And he always reach over there and rub that little rabbit's foot, you know, for good luck. Don't do that, by the way, either, okay? I know people that that's the way they feel about an angel. Just touch it, you know? Sort of like a Buddha, you rub his belly, you know, or rub his head. We're not to have that relationship to angels. And if you do, you need to stop. We worship God, and only He gets our worship. So if we go in Revelation chapter uh, 19, verse 10, I fell at His feet to worship Him, the angel. And He said unto me, See thou do it not, I am thy fellow servant. We all serve God, including the angels. Amen? And of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus worship God. So he said, we're part of a group of people, and who's the focus of our servanthood? Look at the verse. Jesus. Jesus is the focus. When I was in Bible college, I can remember I really appreciated Dr. Bob Jones Jr. getting up and spend a whole chapel or so on this subject. Be careful when you find people worshiping anything and everything but Jesus. In our modern day, I sure believe the Holy Spirit is the third person of Godhead. I'm not diminishing him, but the Holy Spirit points back towards Jesus. You read it in the scriptures. When you find a church that emphasizes the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, there's a misemphasis. When you find a liberal church that doesn't want to talk about Jesus, they always want to just talk about God the Father. And I can remember Dr. Bob Jr. is talking about this way. He'd say, God the, and they can't ever say Father, right? Father. Yeah. They just want to talk about, we worship our Father, you know. He said, be careful. But you want to make sure that when you go to a church and they don't just talk about Jesus like he's a good friend on your shoulder, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. When they've got that right testimony of the gospel of Christ, this is the spirit. Look at this verse. It says, for this is the spirit of prophecy. Jesus is, what does that mean? You know, first when I was reading, I, I, I read in several commentaries, and they all point back to this prophecy has as its main goal to bring us to the gospel of Christ. That's the, it's not, oh, I know more than anybody else does. I know prophecy. Oh, look how smart I am. Prophecy is to bring us to the way of salvation and to the handy work of God to bring us back unto himself. This is the very spirit of prophecy, not a worship of angels, not a worship of human beings, not a worship of knowledge and isms and all the, that I understand more than anybody else. It's the, Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Don't worship me, the angel says. What a beautiful thing, Christian, for you and I to stop and think that we are fellow servants with the angels. We're fellow servants with all the saints of the past as, as they have brought the gospel and, and we talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and Jesus in his present glory sitting at the right hand of God prepared 
in the next half of this chapter as now he comes to that marriage feast and he comes back again with his bride. It's going to be, I can't wait till next week. We're only getting halfway through this chapter. Jesus is coming again next week. Oh, that sounds wrong, doesn't it? Okay. Well, he might. I, I could be right. All right. This is what we preach. This is the true sayings. This is what God wants us, wants us to be able, be able to do. There's much more that I would bring out to us tonight, but let's just take a quick review. Put it all together here for us tonight. Jesus in chapter 4 has stepped forward, and as such we come to the throne room of God, and chapter 5 looks now for a kinsman redeemer, and Jesus volunteers. Jesus picks up that book. And do you remember what the book was? It was a scroll. That's actually what the Greek word means. He picks up the scroll, and that scroll has seals on it. And do you remember uh, how we did that? I'll rip a page off here. The scroll, as, as the different deeds and the different transactions, you would seal it on the end. And then you would seal it again. There were seven seals, and these were all transactions that had to be fulfilled in order for this, this deed to mankind to be redeemed, the bride to be in. These, these seven seals had to be opened and fully opened, and the contract now fully paid, and all the different things. And Jesus says, I, I'm the kinsman redeemer. And I step before the court like to beg your pardon. From the foundation of the earth, I've been willing, and I'm related and I'm able, and I'm here. And as you go through all then, all the opening and the vials and the trumpets blowing, and Jesus is in the contract, and then you find God saying, it is done in about chapter 15 or 16. And then the angel says, hey, would you like to see what happened to that Babylonianism? I'll show you in chapter 17 and 18 what happened to that false anti-bride. And she's cast down, and the smoke of her goes up forever. And in chapter 19, we have, hallelujah, four times. Amen, hallelujah. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth forever. And look, here comes the bride. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And the next thing on the scene, as we would get in this chapter, the heavens open. And there's Jesus. Doesn't this sound like a wedding? Can't you picture it, ladies? <laughs> Come on. Our question tonight is, are you ready? Are you ready because you're part of the bride? Are you ready as a chaste bride? Could I have you go with the book of Ephesians? We're going to close with a passage that we're all super familiar with, but it, it, it is parallel to this. Ephesians chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 25 of Ephesians. Husbands, love your wives. That's always good to preach on, right, ladies? Mother's Day is next week. Make sure you take care of your mothers, okay? Love your wives, all right? Give them something really big and fancy, lots of chocolate, okay? Husbands, love your wives. Even as Christ also loved what? That's his bride, isn't it? And what did he do? He gave himself for it. He shed his blood for us, amen? Why? 
that he might sanctify it. Where did we get those white righteous garments? They were made white by the, washed in the blood of Jesus. That he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That he might present it where? To himself. A glorious church. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that it should be holy and without blemish. Now that's my judicial standing in Jesus Christ, amen? But I would ask us tonight, are you a chaste bride? By position, yes, pastor, I'm saved. But how are you living? How are you living? What kind of bride are you tonight? Let's bow our heads, please. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this passage. And Lord, what an exciting thing for us to consider that we are part of your bride. Lord, we can't wait for you to come again. We can't wait for this all to be triggered at the end time. And yet, Father, we thank you for your mercy to bring in all of our friends and family and your patience to keep preaching the gospel of grace. Oh, Father, may you help us as individuals and as a church to have our garments white and clean. Please, Father, work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, with heads bowed, and whether you're here in the auditorium or you're listening on this, this uh, internet service, are you ready? I wonder tonight if there's somebody would say in your heart, Pastor, if Jesus came right now, I'd be part of the five that were left behind. And the whole thing, the rapture will be done and I'd be left. It's too late. Say, Pastor, I need Jesus Christ as my Savior. What if there's somewhere in the auditorium or at home, you'd say, Pastor, I need Jesus in my heart. Why don't you just right now, why don't you say to God, to Jesus Christ, I believe you are God that died for me in my place, paid for my sin. I acknowledge you as my Savior. I ask you to be my Redeemer from sin. I want you to save my soul tonight. And I wonder if there's somebody here as a Christian, you say, Pastor, I thank the Lord for my position of righteousness, but Pastor, my robes are not very white. And I need to make some cleaning. I need to be making my life ready. If Jesus came this week, I've got some housework. I've got some clothes washing to do in my life. Some garment cleaning. I personally do, Pastor. Pray for me. Is there someone like that? Just slip your hand up where I could see it. Pastor, I need to get some clothes washed. I need to get my garments clean. Father, you've seen our hearts. And I pray tonight that you'd help each and every one of us to have our garments clean. In Jesus' name, amen.